Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. At first, the tall, lanky man Sandy Fox met at a bar was charming. He had a brooding look about him that she found attractive. And that first night, she invited him back to her hotel room where they slept together. She thought that would be the end of it. This was clearly the stuff of one-night stands. But he kept hanging around. He seemed smitten with her. And she found him intriguing enough that she let him. Fox, who met this guy, Daryl Golden, in Atlanta, had planned to fly to Florida for a job assignment. But Daryl's arrival prompted her to cancel the flight. Instead, the two drove together to Florida in Daryl's car. It was night two of this 1970 fortress that Daryl said something that finally triggered Fox's sense of unease. He asked her to write a book about him and assured her he was a worthy subject because he would be dead within a year, the whole world would know his name, and oh, by the way, I've done some bad things. Fox played it cool, but was understandably unnerved. She began to distance herself, then came up with a few excuses that explained why she needed to go her separate way altogether. When she left Daryl, she figured she would never hear from or about him ever again. And then the police arrived. They showed her a picture. Do you know this guy, they asked? Why, yes, Fox said. That's Daryl Golden. I met him last week. That's not his real name, police told her. And then they laid out for Sandy Fox just what her short-lived lover had done that made him so certain his name would soon be known worldwide. After she heard the tale, all Sandy could wonder was, why didn't he kill me too? The guy at the center of this story is named Paul John Knowles. But as much as I'm able, I'm going to avoid using his surname in this episode because what he wanted more than anything was to become famous. He killed people with the sole purpose of being notorious. I thought about assigning him a random pseudonym just because I'd like to think it would have pissed him off, but that would make the storytelling a little confusing, so I'll stick with his first name, Paul. It's pretty generic anyway. By the time journalist Sandy Fox met the guy who called himself Darrow Golden, he had killed about a dozen people. He was an unusual predator. See, typically, serial killers have a type. Ted Bundy mostly went for young women. Jeffrey Dahmer targeted men. Samuel Little went for people on the fringes of society so he wouldn't get caught. But this guy seemed willing and able to kill absolutely anyone. His victims ranged in age from 7 to 65, and while he killed more women than men, he kept that a mix, too. He was born in April 1946 and, at first, raised with his parents in Florida. In a sort of parallel with Carl Panzram from earlier this season, Paul seemed to start getting in trouble the second he left the womb. He was caught stealing bicycles before age 9, and, like Panzram, Paul came from a big family that was dirt poor. So Paul needed 
there was seven of us living in three rooms. This is Paul's brother, Clifton Knowles, speaking to Atlanta news station 11 Alive in 2019. It was like a great room where mom and dad lived in, a little bedroom and a kitchen. And we had an outhouse. It was more than just a crowded home. It was a violent one. You know, when you're a child and certain horrendous things happen to you, you tend to block them out. In today's climate, today's climate, we would all been taken out of the home. We would all been taken out of the home and probably fostered out. There was a lot of physical abuse. My father would call them, he called them whipping. I called them beatings myself. You know, when you leave black and blue marks on a kid from a belt, that's a beating. And the old man was beating Paul with his fist. And he's about to beat him to death. When he got well enough, he ran away again. While life was tough for all the kids, it seemed Paul was the one most prone to react with violence. I mean, it was a seemingly never-ending cycle of abuse, running away, breaking the law, getting caught, then being dragged home for the abuse to start all over again. Finally, Paul was sent to a boys' school. The thinking was that sending the boy away would end the destructive cycle, but the place where he was sent, the Dozier School for Boys, was just as abusive as Paul's home had been, if not worse. From 11 Alive. A 2013 investigation revealed that at least 50 bodies were buried on the grounds of the school. To date, more than 500 former students have alleged brutal beatings and a culture of abuse. The facility opened in 1900 and developed a reputation so bad that NPR ran a story about the place titled Florida's Dozier School for Boys, A True Horror Story. This is a former Dozier resident speaking to Florida lawmakers in December 2021, so just a few months ago. I survived Vietnam, and I survived Dozier. Dozier being the hardest of the two. This man was among a group who appeared before the Florida Senate Criminal Justice Committee to argue that Dozier survivors deserve victim status and compensation for what they endured. From Tampa Bay's Fox 13. The wards of the state were raped, beaten, and humiliated by the state that was supposed to be caring for them and helping them turn their lives around. Why is it so well imprinted on our minds still after all these years? You know, I never talked about it. I became an alcoholic. A state investigation in 2010 closed the school after showing there was rampant abuse between the 1940s and 70s. As you can imagine, this kind of environment wasn't helpful to Paul, whose petty crimes continued escalating throughout his childhood. Then, in the mid-1960s, when he was 19 years old, he caught his first adult charge. He'd been stopped driving a stolen car by a police officer. Instead of cooperating, he grabbed the officer's gun, forced the man inside his car, and held him hostage for a few hours before letting him go. The cop wasn't physically hurt, so the system was pretty lenient on Paul, which, in hindsight, we can consider a mistake. He was sentenced to between one and five years in prison, ultimately serving about two and a half years before being paroled. From a documentary. He was soon let go, however, starting a pattern he'd stick to for the next eight years. Short stints in jail, followed by a return to petty crime, followed again by a short stint in jail. During one parole stint in 1967, he started hanging out with a couple surnamed Knight. The Knights had three children with whom Paul loved to play. 
After he was rearrested, the Knights separated, and the wife of the couple, a woman named Jackie, started writing Paul in prison. Through those letters, the two fell in love and started making plans to get married as soon as Paul was free again. And they did. Paul tried to find legal work for a change, but he discovered that it can be tough to get a job when you have to check that have-you-ever-been-convicted-of-a-felony box. He started drinking and committing crimes again, and Jackie up and moved away with the kids. She and Paul never rekindled their romance, but they still stayed in touch for the rest of his life. That wasn't the only time Paul fell in love. He did it again, and with another pen pal, this time a woman named Angela Kovic. The two were both fascinated by astrology. Paul read his horoscope religiously and seemed to adapt his mood to suit each day's prediction. If told the stars were aligned for a good day, he'd be upbeat, almost manic. He'd be more aloof and withdrawn on days with cautious predictions. Paul and Angela began writing to each other by spring of 1973, after Paul spotted her name in a magazine called American Astrology. She lived on the West Coast in San Francisco, and they hit it off instantly. She called him Mad Dog in her letters, and even visited him in prison in Rayford, Florida in September 1973. Things went so well at their meeting that Paul proposed. Angela accepted from a documentary. Before long, she'd hired him a lawyer who managed to swing him a parole and arranged for him to fly to San Francisco to marry her. This was no easy feat. The lawyer, Sheldon Yavitz, had to appear repeatedly in court and explain to a judge how Paul and Angela were planning to start a life together. He also had to convince California officials to agree to monitor Paul on parole. Yavitz pulled all of this off, and Paul went to San Francisco, ready to marry Angela. But once he got there, she started pulling away. She later said that there was something about Paul's aura that just seemed off to her. In addition to his aura, her psychic had recently warned her about a dangerous new man in her life. The aura combined with the warning was enough for Kovic to send Knowles packing. I'm not sure it should have taken a psychic to make a woman think twice about marrying a pen pal prisoner, but okay. Regardless, the psychic was right. Paul was capable of unspeakable violence. Whether it would have happened regardless of Angela's rejection is up for debate. Brother Clifton thinks it caused something in Paul to snap. He was thinking that that was going to be a, a relationship for him. And he got out there and he found out that it wasn't what he thought it was. And I think that that's what set it off. Maybe. Or maybe that was just an excuse to stop keeping at bay his worst instincts. Either way, it was just days after Angela broke up with Paul that he returned to Florida, pulled a knife on a bartender, got arrested, broke out of his jail cell, and then began a cross-country killing spree that terrorized the entire nation. It's hard to know precisely when the subject of this week's episode decided he wanted to get famous. In his letters to Jackie and Angela, he didn't talk about making a name for himself. Mostly his letters were braggadocio, littered with childish sexual innuendo. I mean, this was a guy who decorated his letters with crayon drawings of astrological symbols. He didn't seem to have some grand master plan. Then came his heartbreak, and soon after that, his first kill. As I mentioned earlier, he attacked a bartender and got arrested. That was in Jacksonville, Florida on July 26, 1974. 
His years of thieving must have taught him a few things about picking locks, because that's how he managed to escape from his jail cell later that night. He knew he needed a car to put some distance between himself and Jacksonville, so he broke into the home of 65-year-old Alice Curtis, a retired school teacher, and bound and gagged the woman before ransacking her home. He stole whatever money and valuables he could find, then stole her car. While he caused her death, it didn't seem that he intentionally set out to kill her. Rather, it appeared that the gag in her mouth knocked her dentures loose, and she choked to death on her dentures. Some sources question whether Paul even realized he killed this poor woman. After all, she could have choked after he fled in her car. But based on what he did next, I think he knew she was dead when he left her. The reason I think that is because a few hours from Curtis's home, as he drove near his mother's house looking for a place to ditch the stolen car, he noticed that two young girls were watching him. These girls weren't strangers. When he saw 11-year-old Lillian Anderson and her 7-year-old sister Millette walking down the street, he recognized them as friends of his mother's, and fearing that they might be able to identify him, he kidnapped the two young girls, strangled them both, and dumped their bodies in a swamp outside of town before hitting the open road. Lillian and Millette had been left home alone just briefly because it so happened that there was a window of time between their mom leaving to check on her sick sister and their dad getting home from work. And who wouldn't think that 11 years old is old enough to stay safe for a short stint? The girl's mother called and checked on them at 7 p.m. and everything seemed fine. But when the girl's father arrived at 7.20, he found the house empty. Wire stories about the missing girls ran nationwide, in part because both girls had medical problems that required daily medication. Their father, Jack, anxiously told reporters, I don't think they would last too long without it. Later, Paul would tell police that he strangled the girls and dumped their bodies into a swamp. The bodies were never found, and their families lived with the agonizing hope that someday they might turn up. They never did. On August 2, 1974, the body of housewife Marjorie Howe was found, her hands and feet bound inside of her Atlantic Beach home. She'd been strangled with a nylon stocking, and her home had been robbed of money and more. Among the missing items was a television set that Paul gave to his former wife Jackie as a gift. Around the same time, Paul apparently picked up a 13-year-old girl hitchhiking on a Georgia road. Ima Jean Sanders hadn't had an easy start in life. Her parents divorced when she was young, and she'd bounced between her dad in Texas and her mother, sometimes in Georgia, sometimes Florida, ever since. She was strong-willed and couldn't seem to sit still. She would run away from her dad's house so often, in fact, that he quit even notifying the police. In January 1974, Ima's two-and-a-half-year-old sister, Charlotte, fell off the family's houseboat docked in Fort Lauderdale and drowned. In July, Ima left her dad's house in Texas yet again and traveled to Warner Robins, Georgia, where her mother and stepfather had moved. Ima liked to go swimming. She liked the boys. This is Betty Weiskup, Ima's mother, talking to Eleven Alive. She liked to go to the sand pit, normal things most 13-year-olds like. In a book about the case, author Jack Smith describes the last time anyone in Ima's family saw her alive. On August 1st, Mom Betty had left Ima in charge of watching her four-year-old sister Sharon. 
but Ima ditched the job to go hang out with some older friends after ordering Sharon to stay inside and keep the doors locked. Ima was never seen again. Well, I figured that she was so unhappy that maybe she just decided to go live her own life. But we did searches and things for Social Security, never could find anything. Soon after, in taped ramblings he made hoping to secure his spot in history, Paul reminisced about picking up a hitchhiking young girl, then raping and strangling her. He must have misheard Ima say her name because he said in the tapes that he'd picked up a girl called Alma. He'd left her body in some woods, then said he came to revisit her a couple of weeks later and was disturbed to see that her corpse had been ravaged by animals. He found her jawbone on the ground and buried it. Hikers later found Ima's remains, all but the jawbone, but she stayed a Jane Doe until 2011 when someone finally thought to run a sample of Ima's known DNA through the FBI's National Missing Person DNA database. They got a hit, then matched that up with Paul's story about Alma and alerted Ima's family. Her sister, Deborah Sanchez. It was like I was numb. I mean, it hurt. I cried because in my heart she was dead. But to hear it and really be confirmed, like, hit you really hard. Mom Betty had sometimes feared something terrible had happened to Ima, that she hadn't simply run away to start a new life. But she never could have imagined that her daughter had been the victim of a serial killer. I took it a lot harder because when you sit around and think about things, then you think, well, if I hadn't have been working, maybe I would have been home and then maybe it wouldn't have happened. So you start to put the blame on yourself, which you don't really know if that would have done it or not. Kathy Sue Woods Pierce had been going through a tough time in Musella, Georgia. The 22-year-old had divorced her husband in early 1974, prompting a kindly neighbor to regularly swing by and check up on both Kathy and her three-year-old son. On August 23rd, the neighbor found Kathy dead in the bathroom, a telephone cord wrapped around her neck. Paul had either broken into her house or had talked his way in, then killed her as her toddler looked on. He left without physically hurting the boy. About 10 days later, a bartender at a roadside pub in Lima, Ohio, noticed that one of his regulars, a guy named William Bates, was chatting with a tall, red-headed man the bartender had never seen before. After a few hours, the two men left together. He strangled Bates, dumped his body in the woods, and stole his money, credit cards, and car. Bates' wife reported him missing, after which police found a car registered to Alice Curtis, the first victim, who choked on her dentures, abandoned near the pub. Bates' body wouldn't be found for more than a month. Meanwhile, Paul drove Bates' stolen car from Ohio to Sacramento, California, then circled back east through Utah and Nevada. There, he encountered a vacationing California couple in their camper. The bodies of Emmett and Lois Johnson, both in their 60s, were discovered by a maintenance worker emptying barrels at a rest stop. Lois was nude. Both had been shot in the temple with a small caliber gun. Though investigators knew Emmett's wallet and Lois's purse were missing, it took longer back then to monitor credit cards, so Paul managed to use one he stole from the couple for several weeks, undetected. Three days after that killing, he killed 42-year-old Charlotte Hicks, a widow on her way to a chili cooking contest. 
After assaulting and strangling her, he dragged her nude body through barbed wire to hide it in some brush. After that, he met a 49-year-old beautician named Ann Dawson, whom he didn't kill right away. He actually traveled with Ann for six days, then said he got tired of her and dumped her corpse in the Mississippi River. She was never found. All of these cases are awful, of course, but there's something extra evil about this next one. On October 16th, he forced his way into the home of a 16-year-old girl named Dawn Wine, who was home alone. He tied her up and raped her. And then, when Dawn's mother, 35-year-old Karen Wine, came home and found her daughter assaulted but alive, he tied her up and raped her too. And then he strangled both of them with silk stockings. He stole money, a tape recorder, and some of Dawn's music, the latter of which he gave to Jackie's children as a gift. Next, he stopped in Virginia, forced his way into the home of 53-year-old Doris Hovey, and convinced her that all he wanted was to steal a firearm, and then he'd leave her in peace. She retrieved her husband's rifle, after which Paul shot her through the head. He left the weapon there. So at this point, October 19, 1974, Paul had killed 14 people in 12 weeks, crisscrossing the country to leave a trail of victims in Florida, Georgia, Texas, Nevada, Ohio, Connecticut, and Virginia. Now, remember that lawyer that Paul's one-time girlfriend, Angela Kovic, got him? The one named Sheldon Yavitz? Well, after killing Doris, Paul went to visit Yavitz at the attorney's Miami office. He handed Yavitz a set of audio tapes and told him, I have something to tell you. Brace yourself. I'm a mass murderer. Sheldon Yavitz listened as his client, Paul, told him about the tapes now in his possession. They were audio diaries, he explained. He'd chronicled his kills, which he termed successes, on the tapes, and Paul said he wanted Yavitz to keep them safe only releasing them after his death so he could become as famous as Bonnie and Clyde. Now, an attorney doesn't have to act on knowledge that you're a confessed killer. Rules vary by state, but generally speaking, a defense lawyer's job isn't to prove you innocent. It's to make sure you're properly defended and to ensure that if you are convicted, it wasn't because of an unfair trial. There could be an argument that Yavitz had a moral obligation to alert authorities since Paul was in the middle of a nationwide crime spree, but that's not how Yavitz saw it. Rather, he agreed to keep the tape recording safe. He later said that he did try to convince Paul to surrender, but that Paul wouldn't listen because he knew his days were numbered. He'd killed in death penalty states, after all, so he figured it'd be better for cops to kill him during capture than for him to fry in an electric chair. It's hard not to hold Yavitz at least partly responsible for the deaths that came next. He was the only person in the world who knew that Paul was in the midst of a killing spree, and he did nothing about it. Maybe if he had, Carswell Carr and his 15-year-old daughter Mandy might still be alive. The two were killed in their home in Milledgeville, Georgia, on November 6th. Worked a lot of murders, but that was the bloodiest crime scene. This is retired detective James Josie. I can still see the blood. I can see it in the bed. I can see him with all his stab wounds. And I, I was asking the, the coroner when we were at the funeral home, 
uh, do an autopsy, what were all those marks? Come to find out he had stabbed him so many times that he broke the tips off the scissors. He was stabbed so many times he bled through the mattress. Mandy was strangled. There was evidence suggesting that afterward he attempted to have sex with the girl's corpse. It was two days after this slaying that Paul caught the eye of journalist Sandy Fox in an Atlanta bar. Fox was British and had come to the U.S. with a plan to land a scoop that would get her a job with the most respected paper in the country, the National Enquirer. Just kidding. It was then, and still is, garbage, which should at least give you a sense of what type of journalist Fox aimed to be. Fox would later recall that Paul was tall and rugged, looking like a cross between movie stars Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill. Fox wanted to get laid, so she invited him to her hotel room. Paul, however, couldn't perform. Author Jack Smith wrote that though Paul routinely raped his victims, he rarely reached orgasm with the women he attacked. Fox still found something interesting about the guy, though, and the two hung out for a couple of days. Then Paul, knowing that Fox was a writer, asked her to write a book about him. He told her that he had done something really bad warranting such a book, and that he'd made recordings explaining it all, and his lawyer would release those recordings once he was dead. Fox had sense enough to peel away from the guy, though she had managed to introduce him to some friends, a husband and wife couple who thought he seemed like a nice enough guy who now seemed lonely. When Paul offered to drive the wife, Susan McKenzie, to an appointment she had, she happily agreed. On the way, he pulled over, whipped out a pistol, and demanded sex. Susan managed to get away and alert police, providing a description of him and the white Chevrolet Impala he was driving. Paul knew he needed new wheels, so he wormed his way into the house of Beverly Maybe, a woman with cerebral palsy, who said she didn't have a car, but her sister did, and that sister was about to come over. So when Barbara Tucker got there, her six-year-old son in tow, Paul tied up Beverly and the boy, left them at Beverly's house, then forced Barbara into her car. He drove her to a motel room where he bound and gagged her and repeatedly assaulted her, though Barbara later said she didn't quite consider it rape. It wasn't rape in my mind because the man wasn't normal. He was not normal that way, sexually. He was trying but couldn't do anything. Uh, Impotent. You'd think that Barbara would have been terrified, and surely she was. But she was also sympathetic to this piteous man. She knew he had killed one person. He had told her he needed a car to flee police because of it. But she had no idea that he'd left a trail of bodies during a months-long killing spree. In hindsight, she said he tried to tell her, but... I mean, who wants to hear that? And I was telling her, like, why do you want to write a book? He wanted to be famous. Famous for what? Murdering a person? If she'd known his body count, she might not have stayed as calm and collected as she did, which could have cost her her life. Instead, she kept him talking, and it seems he let his guard down. When he tied me up, he always made it real loose. And then the last time, he didn't know that he left the keys on the nightstand. He didn't know that he did that. He just locked the door and went his way. And So I started sawing my sheet thing off. And I got myself loose. After hours of on and off assault, Barbara Tucker finally escaped the motel room, and Paul knew his days were numbered. Sure enough, a 
the state troopers spotted him in Barbara's stolen car and pulled him over. Paul took the cop hostage inside of the cop's own patrol car, then used the sirens and lights on that car to pull another motorist over. Then he forced the trooper and the motorist in the back of the new car. And drove the three of them to a remote area. He then led the two men into the woods, tied them to a tree, and shot them. Their names were Charles Campbell and James Meyer. It appears they'd fully cooperated with Paul, fighting neither in the car nor while being handcuffed to the tree. In fact, according to lawyer Sheldon Yabitz in the 11 Alive piece, They stopped at a gas station. Paul got out of the car. And the police officer, Campbell, and the other victim are sitting in the car and don't do anything. It's a four-door sedan. They don't make any effort. They make no effort to get out. They don't call for help. They do nothing. The next day, Knowles is driving the car himself. There's nobody else in the car. A police officer spots the car. They set up a roadblock. When they try to stop him, Knowles smashes into the roadblock. But he's able to get out of the car, and he runs into the woods. An officer managed to shoot him in the leg, but Paul kept running. Because they'd searched Meyer's crashed car, authorities held out hope that Meyer and Campbell were still alive because there weren't any signs that someone had been killed inside of it, so a call went out to officers to capture Paul alive. The hope was that once he was caught, he could tell authorities where he'd left his hostages. Ultimately, though, it wasn't an officer who caught Paul. It was a Vietnam vet who happened to live near the area. David Clark spotted the lanky man bleeding from his head and limping from the gunshot wound to his leg. Paul said, please help me. Clark, who had a shotgun on the stranger, called police. They finally arrested him. Once in custody, Paul refused to help them find Campbell and Meyer. He even made a game of it. He told officers that he had a word in his mind and only if they spoke that special word would he tell them where he had taken the men. It took four days before deer hunters found their bodies in a pine thicket. Afterward, Paul told them what his magic word had been. It was Pabst, because there was a brewery near the pine thicket. Paul told police he had killed dozens of people. He said 33 or maybe 35. And he didn't know for sure which. Journalist Randall Savage. We were able to document 18. Once investigators learned that, lordy, there were tapes, they grew determined to get the audio from lawyer Sheldon Yavitz. Yavitz fought their efforts. In fact, he and his wife were both jailed on contempt of court charges for a few days, but ultimately, he turned them over after a judge ordered him to. He wanted, when he died, that his crimes be made known and the proceeds would go to his mother. It's his confession. He's describing what he did who he killed, where he killed them. There's 14 on the tape. There's two in, in Millersville, Georgia, and the civilian with the police officer. That's, the, that's what makes the 18. And it became evidence of the grand jury, and it never left the grand jury. But uh, no one ever got to hear the tape. It doesn't exist. Did you catch what he said at the end there? It's really fast. The tape doesn't exist anymore. It did exist. It had been entered into evidence, but it disappeared after Paul died. If you've listened to my reporting in the podcast Accused, you'll know that evidence actually disappears all the time, often by supposedly getting ruined in one courthouse flood or another. It happens so often, in fact, it's kind of a joke. That's what supposedly happened here. Before anyone had a chance to copy the tapes, they were destroyed by a flood. Meanwhile, 
Paul offered to lead investigators to some of the missing bodies and murder weapons he had left in his wake. On December 18th, about a month after Paul's arrest, Sheriff Earl Lee and Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Ronnie Angel loaded Paul into a car and headed out to Henry County. Where Charles Campbell's handgun had allegedly been dumped. While en route, Knowles jumped Lee in the car, attempting to steal his handgun. The gun went off through the holster in the car, and as Lee and Knowles struggled, The car swerved across the lanes until finally Agent Angel, who was sitting in the front passenger seat, opened fire, shooting Paul three times. He was killed instantly. His early death, which sounds an awful lot like suicide by cop, probably contributes to this guy being far less known than, say, Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, both of whom were killing around the same time. Bundy and Gacy both lived to face trial and both appealed their guilty verdicts, which meant that the details of the testimony were documented in transcripts. Because there never was on-the-record testimony about Paul's case, and because his own words were lost to a flood, he didn't get nearly as famous as he had apparently hoped. Some people are disappointed, at least about the tapes. Retired Detective James Josie again. I would love to have listened to him to try to understand why he did what he did. You don't kill 16, 17, 18, 29, 30, 35 people. You just don't do it. I'm almost certain there are other victims out there that are related to his activity. Paul did get some notoriety when journalist Sandy Fox did as she was asked and released a book about her few days with a guy. The first release was titled Killing Time, but she later updated to the far more sensationalistic In Love with the Serial Killer. She died in 2005. Now, if you're vaguely familiar with this case, you might know that Paul has one of those sexy nicknames that media like to give killers. He's sometimes called the Casanova Killer, owing to his reputed charm, which he apparently weaponized to get people to cooperate with him. I've put off mentioning the nickname, though, because he wasn't known as that during his lifetime or even in the first decades afterward. He was a con artist. He could con you out of your wallet, your watch, your car. Uh, He was a smooth talker. His kills were so erratic and motiveless that police had no idea they were even looking at a serial killer until after his arrest. Then the pieces started falling into place, thanks in part to Paul's habit of ditching one victim's car near the site where he stole the next one. The first time I can find this guy referenced as the Casanova killer is in a 2010 news story. Strangely, that story is about assault allegations against Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger, and Paul's nickname is thrown in toward the bottom of the story totally as an aside. If you're curious, there was no connection between the two cases. It just so happened that Ben's accuser lived in a town where Paul had struck. Anyway, before 2010, there is no sexy nickname attached to Paul. But nowadays, it's everywhere. The Casanova Killer. The Casanova Killer. A trail of bodies in his wake, later dubbed the Casanova Murders. The so-called Casanova. So while you'll be able to Google that phrase and learn more about him, remember as you're typing it in that it's a bit of revisionist history. 
He was a cruel, child-killing, impotent rapist who might have struck some as good-looking, but who ultimately got people to do stuff because he was pathetic. And then he ultimately didn't even have the courage to face his victims or their survivors in court. That's who Paul John Knowles was. To research this story, I read Jack Smith's book, The Casanova Killer, The Life of Serial Killer, Paul John Knowles. I didn't tell you the name of the book until now because it highlights his after-the-fact nickname. I didn't read Sandy Fox's book because I kind of found her offensive as a journalist, plus most of the pertinent stuff had been republished elsewhere anyway. Eleven Alive's documentary was really well done and is available on its YouTube channel. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.